And the fact is this, boys. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Hi, and welcome to The Curb Podcast. My name is Andrew Pearce, and this podcast is recorded in Bulu, Perth, Western Australia. Sovereignty never ceded. On this episode, I chat with director Matt Vesely about his feature film debut, Monolith. Monolith is a chilling sci-fi thriller that follows a journalist, played by Lily Sullivan, whose livelihood is at stake after a defamation case threatens her career. In a bid to escape the pressure of the case, she heads to her parents' home out in the middle of nowhere and starts working on a podcast called Beyond Believable. It's a show that looks at the unbelievable true stories from around the world. Over the following tense 90 minutes, the journalist world unravels as a story about mysterious black bricks that appear in people's lives comes to her attention. The more she interviews people, the deeper the mystery takes her. In this interview, Matt talks about the process that he employs to create a personality for an inanimate object, like the black brick that we see in the film. He also talks about how the writer, Lucy Campbell, producer Bettina Hamilton, and himself gave Lily Sullivan the space to build a performance where she is the only character that we see on screen. And additionally, he answers a very strange question that I ask, which is, what exactly is going on in South Australia that has made it the hotbed for great Australian films this year? After films like Talk To Me, Monolith, You'll Never Find Me, and a whole bunch more have been created there. Monolith is in Australian cinemas from October 26th. To find out more about screening dates, make sure to visit the Bonsai Films Facebook page for details. Additionally, if you want to read my review or to read Nadine's interview with Lily Sullivan, then head over to thecurb.com.au. For now, here is a trailer for Monolith, followed by the interview with Matt Vesely. Did you go to Sitges, was it? I can never pronounce that, that festival properly. Yeah, Sitges, yeah. Um, yes, I did. Yeah, Lucy and I went. It was really fun. It's a really fun festival. Genre festivals are so cool. The the audiences are so amped to be there. Mm. It's a really fun crowd, yeah. Yeah, I've been following the uh, the exploits of Alexandra Helen Nicholas uh, as she was yes. part of the jury yeah, yeah. there. And some yeah. of the films that she got to watch, I'm just like... Oh, 
it's phenomenal. But the amount of Australian films there as well was just so mind-blowing. It's great to see a huge support for them, especially this year. There's been so many great films. Your film, Godless, Bird Eater, Talk to Me, all these great films. So it's it's impressive, yeah. Yeah, Late Night with the Devil was there and what? Something else? Yeah, the, oh, and you'll, uh, you'll Never Find Me was there as well. Yeah, it, it was it was wild. I mean, we just had this whole Australian crew there. It was really fun. Yeah. So we'll jump into talking about Monolith now. I watched it for the second time just the other night, and it blew me away probably even more the, the second time I watched it because of the okay. – uh, I knew what was coming, so I could anticipate things. But then that also gave me the space to kind of be a little bit surprised about some of the creative choices that you've got in there, um, which we'll get onto eventually about turning mundane things into terrifying moments. I guess I want to start off by talking about the creative process about how this particular film came about, because unlike your short films, you're not writing this one. You There's a collaborative process here. So if you can talk about that, would be great. So the film was developed as part of the South Australian Film Corporation and Adelaide Film Festival's Film Lab New Voices Lab, which was like, a you know, you would apply as a team, I think three teams got selected and we had a year to develop and with the knowing that the outcome would be if you were successful over that year, one of the teams would get selected to make it for a kind of fixed small budget that you kind of knew in advance. And so, you know, you're writing to that budget, you're, you're trying to write something that is not um, squeezed into that budget. It's really birthed out, you know, bespoke for that budget and, and, you know, is defined by it and hopefully made better for it, you know, not just something made on the cheap as it were. And as you say, no, I normally, I write as well. My sort of day job is I work in TV development. And this was just because of that lab. It was that, you know, they were looking for broader, newer teams. And um, it was Lucy that came to me and said, hey, you know, like I'll write with you if that makes the application look better. Like, you know, let's do it. And Lucy and I just caught, Lucy and I worked together on, um, television stuff she's a, a great script coordinator here in, in Adelaide does all the TV shows that come through and script editor and stuff yeah we sat down for breakfast and and we just realized we had very similar taste like all the all the references she was saying were the references that I loved and it just felt like a really good fit and then the three of us you know Bettina the producer uh, Lucy and myself went into this lab with three one-page ideas like we deliberately went in with not very much because we wanted to build it for that for that for that program we didn't want to have some something out of the back drawer that we were kind of trying to make work um so two of them were like like a sci-fi comedy and a horror comedy which i had which i'd kind of come up with and then the third one was monolith which the three of us are kind of jammed together just before the lab we kind of i pitched something about a, a psychologist interviewing people after an alien abduction like a series of interviews and it was bettina our producer who said oh what about a podcaster isn't that, is there something interesting about podcasting and something very zeitgeisty about that and the, and the you know the malleability of truth and new media and all these kinds of things and so we just went in with that idea and very quickly it became evident that that was the one we were going to follow and and then it was just a kind of early on a very collaborative process about what what are the kind of themes we're interested in what are the kind of what's the sort of structure we like you know lucy and i were breaking the kind of the three act structure together and stuff but then lucy would go off and and you know, come up with the bricks and come up with these characters. And, and you know, I really enjoyed not writing it, to be honest. It was a, a very rewarding experience. And and Lucy just wrote a better script than I ever could have written. And that was very clear to me very quickly. Like I, the first draft came back and Bettina and I were like, oh, right, great. Like it just, 
Luis, yeah, Luis just did an amazing job. So we're going to try to do it again. We're like working on something, the three of us again, try to replicate that development. Nice. Uh, that's what, I mean, it's it's interesting you saying, you know, the, the freeing nature of not having to write it because it's the thing I was going to ask you is you do a lot of writing and, you, you know, your short films, they balance sci-fi and a little bit of comedy there as well. But then, you know, as you're saying, you're working with TV and a lot of that is to do with comedic scripts. And I'm curious about getting the balance of comedy and you know, genre and things like that, but then also kind of relinquishing the comedy for monolith. You, you're stepping aside and pushing aside. What was the creative choice behind that? Was there ever a choice to say, let's have a little bit of comedy here or make it a little bit more comedic than it is? Yeah. I mean, monolith itself, when we were working on that one, it didn't feel like it needed comedy. It's got moments of lightness in it. And I think there are moments, particularly in the sort of some of the abject horror, to, you know, that, that, are, that I still find kind of funny, but there's something about the sort of plainness of the way we present things that I think can be pretty funny, but it's no, it's not a comedy. And I was nervous about that. I think early on in that lab, when it became clear that Monolith, which has got, which is more of a sci-fi horror thriller was, was coming to the top. I was nervous. And I said to Bettina, you know, I don't know, shouldn't I be, I've been making comedies. Shouldn't I make comedy? And she said to me, okay, we'll play a game. Like you, you, you're not allowed to think I'm going to just ask you a question. You're just going to answer straight away. And I was like, okay. And she said, all right, if you could have directed any movie in history, what would it have been? And I said, alien without even like hesitating without a moment's pause. And she was like, cool. This is the one we're doing then. I tell you, it's like all the stuff that I actually love that I watch. I, I, I'm sort of self-deprecating. I do stand up comedy and there's something that like, that I use that as a, like a, a crutch or like a kind of, um, you know, it's the classic, like, you know, don't show too much of yourself. You can be funny. You can kind of hide yourself behind that or something. But all the stuff that I love is, like, sci-fi, horror, pretty dark stuff. My favourite films are, like, Alien and Akira and Children of Men and I have a Magnolia poster behind me. And, like, it's it's all this kind of stuff. So it just made a lot of sense. And I tell you, giving up, like, not feeling like I needed to be funny the feel, and feeling like I could go as strange or as scary or as creative uh, push the tone as hard as I could was incredibly freeing and actually like paradoxically I found it way more fun like heaps more fun yeah well that, that's one of the things I was going to ask you about is um for this I was watching your short films again and getting to see that creative vision come through and they're so good but in particular one of your early ones is a mention of Tunguska or Tunguska rock and I'm curious is X-Files was that a the thing for you growing up yeah man X yes that is specifically an X-Files reference in uh my best friend is stuck on the ceiling and um and definitely when we were making monolith like that was something that Lucy and I talked about a lot and and you know I was a huge X-Files kid really really into it from quite a young age I would be like before I was even watching it on TV I would go to the video store and they would just have the like um the conspiracy ones like on VHS, you know, they're just, just the overarching ones they would have. And I would rent those and gradually work out what was going on. And then by the end of the show airing, I was watching it on TV. Yeah. No massive influence. And I think, I think I still say that about Monolith that I was just trying to do like a cool X-Files episode in many ways. Like, yeah, I love that stuff. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is like, that was my first impression is, uh, you know, I kept on going down this bit of a rabbit hole after watching it for the first time. And just going into the mindset of what is the modern Mulder in a way, like who, yeah. what is the kind of modern investigator? And, and it is in a lot of ways, a podcaster. It is somebody sitting there yeah. trying to resolve and, and get to the bottom of a, a, an issue or a problem uh, through a podcast. And that's what's presented so well. Can you talk about 
that kind of uh, modern investigator, the the podcaster, the, the the storyteller through a podcasting medium, what draws you to that particular kind of character? Well, we were super interested in investigating like what truth means in a kind of modern world as well, because I think you know ultimately the, what monolith is about is about the kind of power that the storyteller has and the and the responsibility that they have and the kind of privilege that that, that is the there's a sort of um the ability to control narrative even when it's not your own narrative is actually incredibly important and dangerous and i think that's kind of what we were interested in is like investigating the ethics of that and um, I, was, I went on uh, Justin Hamilton, the comedian's pod, big squid podcast the other day, and he, he, we, we talked about Mulder on, on that podcast too, and he made a really valid point that, like, today Mulder would be almost like a QAnon. You know, he's like, like back in the 90s, that was like, that was like take, taking t- power to task, you know, and now it's like flips the other way and it's become this kind of like this right-wing hot button. So we, we were really interested in, like, looking at that and that kind of stuff and, like, how conspiracies are dangerous and how, you know, there's a, there's a whole sort of thread in monolith about like sp- the danger of spreading a false narrative or the danger of spreading indeed a, a true narrative that, but that is dangerous to the people. And we were just interested in investigating those ideas and, and not doing so in a, in a super pat way too. Like we didn't want to present a really dry argument. That's like conspiracy bad. Okay. Like, you know, QAnon bad. Like that's, that's a little, there's nothing to talk about there. It's true. I agree with it, but it's not. It's not. It's not a lot to talk about. So we were interested in, in presenting a, a slightly more complex character who's dealing with a conspiracy that may be true, but then what happens then? And and when it turns inward on her own story, and she's having to reflect on her own choices, like what will she be able to make the right choice? And you know, th- these kinds of questions are what we're really interested in. Yeah, and and with that, of course, let's transition talking about Lily who is so powerful yeah. and she is effectively the only person that we get to see can you talk about creating that really complicated character because at times we don't like her we have no interest in uh empathizing with her because she's doing some terrible things but then on the same hand we care about her quite a lot because of the situation that she's in so I'm curious if you can talk about creating that character with her the first draft that Lucy did was incredibly strong and like narratively is pretty much what you see on screen. And the things we were working on in subsequent drafts was mostly character, like working out the level of backstory that we kind of, how much do we need to show, you know, how much arc and change can we give her the importance of those choices that she's making, you know, the real turning points where she makes an unethical choice or she pushes too hard on someone in an interview. We're really trying to find those. And I think, I think Luce did a really good job because we, when I sat down with Lily and we did a read through, I was like, do you have, have you got any questions? And she was like, no, not really. Cause Lucy had written a very clear, very um, considered script. So, you know, that's a, that's a great point to start from. And then working with Lily, like, I mean, we're very lucky to get her in the first place, you know, like just casting that role is always very, you know, nerve wracking because it's the whole film. And if it doesn't work, you know, you're, the whole movie's not going to work no matter how good your script is if that performer is not good it's like you would die so so lucky to get her she's a very instinctual actor so she she, she likes to work very physically um and not over intellectualize things too much so we did some things early on before she came to adelaide to shoot we did some exercises the um the opening of the film is a her doing an apology to camera it's like a her mea culpa to the newspaper that she's you know, to her, she's been cancelled and she's sort of doing this, this 
apology. And that's Lily wrote that. Like that's an exercise we did in um, pre that I was like, oh, I just want you to try some things to start building this character and this language and this feeling. Uh, so you come into the house, you know, with this kind of chip on your shoulder, we're trying to build this stuff. And I said, right, you know, go away. I want you to write this apology video and record it and send it back to me. And no one else will see it. It's just for rehearsal. And she did it and it was great. And it was this moment of like, oh, there's the character. It was like the first time we sort of got to see it. In the edit, we were struggling with like the, the opening of the film. We weren't quite getting into Lily's character quickly enough. We were sort of deliberately obfuscating her for a while to have this sort of turn where it sort of flips back in on her. But it was a, it just wasn't, it, it was intellectually interesting, but like as an audience, it was like, yeah, I just need to know who I'm dealing with. And I cheekily like took that rehearsal video. I was like, oh my God, what happens if I like just put that at the start with the editor, Tanya Nimi, who's an incredible editor. We like just tried that out. We like put that at the front. I was like, all oh, right, it works now. And um, I felt a bit bad. So I had to like, you know, email Lily and say, hey, um, you know that thing we said we weren't going to use? I think I'm going to use it. And I was like, but you can re-record it if you want. So she just re-recorded it. She felt like, you know, okay, I know it's going to be in the film now. But she, it was the script was the same. That's, those are Lily's lines in that opening. So it's mostly about that. It's mostly about um, just building some feeling around it. And then on set, it was really about just giving Lily the space that she needed. Obviously, she's supposed to be isolated and with a crew, it's a small crew, but like you're still people running around and, and film sets are chaotic. So we, we started doing things like she would be in charge of letting us know when action was going to happen. So the whale, the first AD would, he'd call roll camera, roll sound, we do all that stuff. And then we'd just go silent. The whole crew would go silent and let Lily have the space. And that would take anywhere from 30 seconds to a few minutes with everyone rolling and everyone just kind of set. And then she would just give a little nod when she was ready, when she was feeling like she could feel in her body and in the space and not not feel that distraction just give a little nod and then then wailed very quietly call action and off we go and it was just about finding little tricks like that to give her what she needed and she like she does push-ups before takes even if there's no physical action like just to feel adrenaline and like she really likes to be within her physicality and that's a really interesting way to work and and I just wanted to get out of the way, mostly. I mean, I, look, as somebody who does a lot of interviews and sits here and, and listens a lot, it is, I was, I was quite impressed by how compelling just watching somebody listening and processing yeah, what yeah, they're yeah, hearing yeah. actually is. Cause yeah. it's like, is that what I look yeah. like? I don't know. You know, I'm not asking people <laughs> as hard questions as she is, but it's like, it, it's really fascinating that capacity and yeah, yeah it's so well done. But with that in mind as well, how did you make it so that it was easy for her to have something to bounce off? Yeah, look, in an ideal world, you'd have your whole cast, like, <clears throat> kind of there on set. And I know, like, the, the great reference we always talk about is Locke, the Tom Hardy film. But he's, he's, it's him in a car, yeah, for an hour and a half. And he's and they did that live. They had, like, Olivia Coleman and Tom Holland and stuff, like, in a hotel room, like, calling him and, like, doing it live. We are a small-budget film, and unfortunately, like, one of the ways we kind of made the film work is we knew we could shoot it quite quickly. We shot in 15 days and, you know, having to fully direct those other performances and get those actors and schedule them was never going to quite work for us. So, but at the same time, you know, having a, doing those voices first, pre-recording them is terrible. It doesn't give anything for Lucy, uh, Lily, sorry, to work with. Uh, if you watch my shorts, you would have seen Sister Mara, which is the robot and like, that that I pre-recorded that robot because he was like he sort of flashes and kind of needed that to like that's all triggered and but poor Dave Quirk had nothing to work with and so I had this lesson of like working with a pre-record is like really tough for an actor 
So definitely didn't want to do that. Definitely didn't, couldn't get the cast in. So, you know, problem solving, what we ended up doing, didn't want like me reading off set, you know, really, you know, not giving Lily much to work with. So we had one actor, Ansuya Nathan, who plays Paula in the film, the, the um, daughter of Florime, who kind of yells at her later in the film. She did everyone on set. So she's Adelaide-based, so she was working with us. She's a great writer as well. She understands narrative. There was like a trust her. I've been working with her for a, a year at Closer. It was like the there's a good relationship there. So I knew that having someone like that, she's got a great theatre background. It was all going to work. So so basically it's fully rigged up. Our sound team rigged it up so that Ansuya was down the hall sitting in a walk-in closet in this huge house, literally talking on a microphone that's piped into Lily's headphones as if she's getting a phone call. So just felt very real for Lily in terms of the perspective. She's obviously always talking to Ansuya, but it meant that she could um, ask her to do things that maybe we didn't want in the, the final performance like oh hey can you just really yell at me on this line i just need something to kind of bounce off for this moment can you make a strange noise at this point even though this it's supposed to be silent so i can like just react and really great way to work and again it's we're just trying to support lily so that she, her performance is as strong as it can be especially as you say she's listening and the listening is so important i think it was um when we were shooting the klaus the art collector conversation that was a few days into the shoot and Lucy and I were sitting behind the split watching Lily listen to that big story. And that was the moment we realized that we'd struck gold with her. It was just, she was so captivating. We're in the shot, like right here and her eyes are just saying everything. And that's when you know the film is hopefully going to work because that, that stuff's working, not just when she's up and about. Yeah. I'm curious then as well, as we're talking about, like it's, a smaller budget film, but there is this very global feel from it. And I couldn't put my finger on to the reason why it feels larger than it actually is uh, in the first watch. But then watching it again, I'm like, of course, it's the accents. The accents make it feel like a global thing. I'm curious if you can talk about the decision to have the other characters. Each of them have a specific kind of accent to give the impression that it's it's happening all around the world. Yeah, as you say, I mean, that's the important thing, right? The, from a pure narrative perspective, it's like the idea is it's, it's like everywhere and you want to feel the sense of dread like spreading across the world. And because we're not using, we're, we've deliberately chosen not to do video calls or anything, we really want it to be just audio just for that tone and the mystery and, the, and, and also this distancing from the storyteller so that you, you're still questioning who's on the other end of the line, can I trust them, you know, trying to play with all that stuff. So accents is all you've got to work with. Um, but it is really instant, like, kind of tell, isn't it? Like, you can know, okay, German, there's a American character, there's a character from Africa, um, there's a montage where we've got a Japanese man and a woman from Spain, and, you know, you, it's just an instant way to kind of communicate that feeling of it spreading. I think... Um, we were very, you know, there was never a question of like, would Lily not do an Australian accent, for example, to make it feel more global in inverted quotes, because we were just not interested in that. We don't want to hide that we're Australian. We're proud of that. And and also it just feels more grounded, I think, when we're not trying to hide that stuff. And I think we were also lucky to shoot in winter in Adelaide, that when you shoot out those windows, it doesn't look, it looks Australian. There's the gum trees and stuff, but it doesn't have that like sort of bleached earth kind of, you know, the 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 dying yellow grass of summer. It's like, it was quite green and quite wet. And I think that, um, and there's mist rolling in and, you know, the overcast. And I think that helps not only with the sort of the darker tone, but also for it to sort of place it in this kind of strange, could be anywhere kind of epicenter of the story. 
So with that in mind, how important is it to cast a house that actually creates a, a spooky feeling? Because the setting does so much work in, in amplifying that unsettling feeling there. Yeah, and they were amplifying for the budget as yeah. well. But, yeah. But, uh, well, we, we, have the, we have a great locations manager, Scott McCartan, who works a lot in South Australia on TV and film, and he's good friends with Bettina, so he was, we were lucky to get him to come out and find stuff for us. He only had to find one location, which is helpful. At first, it was set on the coast in South Australia. There was uh, We had ideas about the you know seeing the ocean and the cliffs and stuff. There's amazing cliffs in south of Adelaide. And we went and looked at some houses there and they had amazing views, but the house of the houses themselves, they were great, but they didn't actually what I was looking for is this moment where you step out of her recording booth into the rest of the house. And you kind of need to feel that privilege straight away, this kind of sense of wealth because it's so, uh, and without giving away too much, that so becomes a big part of the story. And you need the moment where the audience goes, oh, fuck, all right, okay, I see who we're dealing with now. And, again, about, like, these moments, these clear turning points where we're, where we're revealing things about the character. And so I said to Scott, all right, if we forget the beach, don't worry about that, just go and find me the kind of the, the best-looking, most interesting, striking house that kind of communicates these ideas you can. He just found a YouTube, an architectural video about, you know, like an architect bragging about building this new home and sort of Google earthed it and kind of worked out, kind of managed to detective his way like a podcast <laughs> to where it might be um, and just went up and rang on the doorbell and and let, and let and said, hey, can I come have a look? And that the family that we work with are so kind to us, such a lovely family that um, were really open to us um, using the house, which is, you know, a risk with a film crew, but they, you know, they welcomed us in. I think that, I think they were probably just really excited to show their house off on, you know, shoot it with beautiful cinematography because it's such a beautiful home. And so, yeah, we went in there. I think Mike, our cinematographer, was really excited by it. There's a lot of glass and that gives him a lot to work with, a lot of depth. There was a lot of angles. There's beautiful textures in there. They've got some amazing concrete, this amazing brickwork, this exposed concrete on the wall. They've just got a lot of, it's, it's a very tasteful, beautiful home. And, it just let us let us do a lot with it. And as you say, like the huge glass windows create this feeling of being watched the whole time that really adds something to the film that you kind of don't know until you until you find that location. And then then you're trying to work with it. Then you're trying to like, all right, how much can we like shoot through that glass and, and work with the home? Yeah. With that that kind of exposed brick and the concrete and stuff like that, it almost helps amplify the personality of the brick. And I'm curious if you can talk about <laughs> yeah. creating a personality for an inanimate object and because that that seems to be it's almost something that you've done throughout your career in like in the short films, you've got a floating space rock, you've got a service robot and now yeah there's this black yeah, brick yeah. and they each have yeah. this distinct personality. How, how do you go about creating that? A lot of these are actually with audio. So same in system era, the George, the robot who actually sits behind, he lives behind me. He just lives in my house. He's humongous prop. Partly it's the great performance of the late Nick Nemiroff in that film. He's a, who was a wonderful friend and, um, and comedian, but also we were doing Lee Kenyon who sound designed all of those films, the short films and monolith with George. He's doing heaps of stuff like, this really detailed like whirring of his hard drive clicking and stuff that is like that he's doing his emotion is like this weird real dance of like when it speeds up and when he's like it chugs and breaks and and so monolith we did we took that lesson and did the same thing with the brick so there's this there's this like wavel that appears quite early on in the film you just sort of hear it and it's and it grows and ebbs and flows through the film and it's this kind of presence that 
and it morphs and changes, it gets more complex as the film goes on. So really, really it's a lot of audio and that's all, you know, complemented by Ben's score, which is like almost sound design in itself. It's um, very textured and, you know, we're kind of playing with really audio as a subjective layer. The film is like shot quite objectively, I think. It's like it sort of like presents things very plainly and kind of like there it is, including the brick. It's like, well, there it is. But with audio, we're able to kind of give it a feeling, I think. So that's the real trick for me is sound, actually, because I like to... And Jonah Booth Remmers and, and, and his team that designed the brick, you know, we, we talked a lot about like, you know, finding a kind of organic feeling to it. And again, kind of not wanting it to feel too science fiction-y, to feel kind of like just a bit raw or something. So there was that conversation. But then I think within the context of the film, it's really that audio that kind of gives it a sense of, you know, control. It's like, you know, it's exerting its influence. Yeah. And that, and that's the other thing. It would come back in to making the mundane feel unsettling and terrifying, like, you know, bathtub, an office, and most pointedly for me, I think, is a birthday cake. I don't think I've ever seen a more yeah. ominous birthday cake presented on yeah, screen. Yeah. Um, yeah, can you yeah. talk about the decision process behind, obviously some of them are narratively tied to the, the plot, of course, but... Um, the decision process behind presenting these kind of static motifs of something that is so routine and mundane and yet it becomes so unsettling and terrifying. Yeah. I mean, those particular visions were something that we came up during writing because they were, because they're, they're long stories at that point. And, and when we're, when Lucy's delivering the drafts, they're like, you know, one or two pages of just one character speaking. And so I'm already going, okay, what am I going to see there? We could just stay on Lily, but and then I had this idea of, oh, hey, Lucy, like I've got, I don't know what that would be, but I've got this idea of like just seeing empty spaces. Like I don't want to, we never want to see other characters. It's all about the whole point is that we only ever see Lily. But what if we we're going into like Lily's interpretation of those stories? She has some sort of abstract kind of version in in her head of what she's seeing, and like I don't know what that would be. And then Lucy would go off and come up with these kind of amazing images of like paper floating through an office and things like that, and. And then working with Jonah again of like, oh, what if the paper's all black and, you know, the, you know, the, the water in the bathtub is black and the birthday cake is black, which is linking to this black brick and, you know, this kind of strangeness to it. So we're just kind of building, you know, just kind of gradually building these elements. And, and again, as I said, like from a cinematography perspective with Mike, the cinematographer working on like presenting them in a relatively plain way, like it's quite sedate and, and bald and just kind of like there it is kind of feeling that I think is kind of quite terrifying on its own, like to present something as as real as possible. There was other things is like the, again, like with the music, I was really obsessed with um, these big drums. That's the only thing I gave Ben. All the other stuff, he the strange voices that he works with and textures and that's all him. The only thing I gave him was like, oh, I love this idea of like big rain times that we might cut to a kitchen and, and for me, it was all still about unsettling, like pulling the rug out from the audience, making them constantly question, not only like, can they believe Lily, but can they believe us as a filmmaker? We're telling them the story as well, but we've got our own motivations. They're re are you as an audience reading too much in, like when you see a shot of a kitchen and the music tells you to be scared, are you reading too much into it? Like uh, there's nothing to be scared about. Like you're bringing your own kind of interpretation in and we just constantly want you to be like questioning what the relationship between is between a storyteller and you as a, a viewer or a listener. And so, yeah, making the mundane feel strange was something that 
Lucy as well and her script has all these moments of the, you know, the rotting, the food deliveries and stuff that are all in the script. That's all Lucy, like, again, finding like little tiny mundane ways to present a strange world. And I love that feeling. I think there's something abject about that that I really enjoy. You mentioned the score. And one of the things I've noticed you do is you like layering in choral voices, like singing voices in the background, like the, you know, people expressing themselves in joyous or terrifying yeah. ways. What draws you to that kind of uh, aspect of a score? Well, I can't take credit for that. I, I'm just, you're probably talking about Stuck on the Ceiling as well has, has yeah. the same thing. But again, that's Ben. Ben did both of those films and actually he didn't do Systemaris, which doesn't have it. So it's like a, it's like something that Ben likes to find. And I think, I think one of the most important things when you're collaborating is to give people ownership of their work you want to help and like, you know, guide a vision as a director or guide a tone. But like, I really like, I'm there to, to, to work with someone and to let them be their best self. And they're better than, you know, Ben's understands music far more than I do. So like, again, I've given some ideas and we put in some temps with some, like, here's some ideas, man, but like go and find your own thing. And we've both stuck on the ceiling and monolith. It didn't have any coral stuff. And he came back with some coral stuff. Especially on stuck in the ceiling, I remember being like, "Really, like, what the yeah. fuck?" Like, I, I, and it took me a couple of listens to kind of, and then I really came around and found it really beautiful and interesting mm. and unique. And I think in um, in Monolith, it was more instant. I like he did it, and I was like, "Oh, this is cool!" Like, yeah. this is really like adding something strange to the thing. And actually, there's times when it doesn't sound like a voice, but it's actually the same, you know, digital instrument that he's using that's that that is a voice, but it's just sort of like. Ah, ah, oh, oh. Yeah. But it just kind of sounds like it's sort of strange stuff. So I think Ben was interested in combining like the artificial and the human, which again is like sort of what's happening narratively as well. And um, so, no, that's, that's all Ben. I can't take credit for that. But again, I just uh, try to embrace what an artist is giving you to work with, you know, and, and I was excited by those choices that he was making. And so, you know, you just kind of like make more of those choices, Ben, keep going. Yeah. I, I love it. I, you know, it just, it amplifies it. It creates the mood and the tone with not much, you know, it's, and, and that's what I'm finding, you know, things like black paper or things like a, a, a great setting and all that kind of stuff. They're non-budgetary things that are really amplifying everything. And it's one of the things which I've noticed about, this has been a stellar year for filmmakers from South Australia. Like there's some, the very best films, Australian films have come out of South Australia this year. And I was talking to, Indiana and Josiah about You'll Never Find Me yeah, earlier yeah. this year. And their yeah. film is also such an oral experience. Yeah, and totally. it got me kind of wondering what what is going on in South Australia that sets you guys apart? I don't know. It's interesting. There's been a lot of genre from South Australia as well, a lot of kind of horror. I mean, Talk to Me is the obvious, the obvious one, which is like a huge, crazy hit. Those boys are amazing. Um, man, I don't know what it is. We're having a bit of a moment because I think a lot of us have been it's slower for us in Adelaide to get somewhere, you know, like, you know, I'm 37 and this is my first feature. Like it just takes us a bit longer. There's a smaller industry here, especially historically, a lot of it was happening on the Eastern States and that's now changing. So it'll start to speed up and Joe and Joe and India are pretty young actually. But I think there's something about like plying, like steadily plying away at your craft maybe. And like, I felt very ready to make my first feature. I wasn't out of my depth and I was, and you know, I had a certain, um, I guess I was aware of where, what budget, where it could stretch to. And like, I was kind of really like, 
careful about making the right choices, not not pushing myself where I knew it, would, it wouldn't work or it would, it would stretch too thin. So, man, I don't know what it is. I think, well, obviously we have like sort of doing our own thing because we're kind of separated and WA is the same, right? So maybe it's something to do with that. But I think it's just, there's just maybe a generation of, of filmmakers starting to come through now who have bided their time and are kind of ready to go. And that, and I, that's what I hope what it is. And, we, and we're also learning from the last generation. I mean, I work for Closer Productions. Sophie Hyde has like mentored me for a very long time. She's obviously an incredible filmmaker who's had incredible success. So, and, and doesn't, and interestingly, she doesn't work in like genre. She works in drama and, and so, but I've learned beautiful lessons from that that I can take into like a horror space and the way she works. So, it's a combination of all those things, I guess. But, um, you know, it's a nice place to live and work. We've got a scary history, maybe. I don't know. I'd never feel that. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Like, Sophie Hyde is such a huge value for South Australia. I know she's been such an integral person for a lot of people who have worked there and, and helped create a lot of, uh, you know, career paths and things like that. So it's it's quite wonderful. Um, the last question, which is something which I like asking people and it either terrifies people or sometimes they love answering it, but it's what presenting Australian culture means to you on screen. What, what does it mean to you as an Australian filmmaker to put Australia on screen? Is it, you know, does the Australian cultural identity, do you think about it at all when you're creating something? Look, because not particularly only in a very specific sense, because I, you know, I'm so obsessed with like genre and science fiction and, and as you say, modeling's got kind of this global kind of feel. But one thing I'm I really don't want to do is shy away from it either. Do you know? It's like it was as you say, it was never a, a question of like, oh, we could do Lily with an American accent because maybe it'll sell better. You know, like, no, I, we want to be as grounded and truthful as possible. And you know, I'm a guy from Adelaide, so that's what the film's gonna be, you know, and and I think we're proud of where we're from. I mean, we're very lucky to work here and in, in Adelaide on the lands of the Ghana people. We feel very blessed, but to, to have this opportunity, um, we feel a responsibility towards it too, you know, as white privileged filmmakers, you know, that we, we did feel a responsibility in this story to kind of reflect that. That's reflected in the narrative that it is about a white privileged storyteller and, and having to confront that privilege and recognise that privilege. We hope that we you know, that there's a, there's a positive um, or at least a responsible message in that. But look, it's just, it's just a part of who we are. And I don't want to hide that is, I guess, the short and sweet answer. Yeah. This has been a great chat. Uh, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. Like Monolith is such a, such a good film. You know, I've, I've seen it twice already. I'm, I'm eager to watch it a third time, like because of the world that you created oh, the yeah. and stuff. So it's a lot to be proud of. Congratulations to you and the team. I'm really excited to see where you all go from here. Uh, you've got some exciting stories to tell in the future. Yeah. Congratulations, Matt. Yeah. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks for um, rescheduling and yeah, taking the time to, you know, we're so stoked that people want to talk to us about our film. We do, this whole thing is so exciting to us. So really appreciate it.